Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question. Even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course. So if people are interested, you can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to marthabeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan. This is another episode of Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out. Mm. I myself have been trying to figure it out since we last convened, uh, by reading complicated books. Oh, yeah. And then, honestly, Marty went to the doctor, picked up a mad magazine in the waiting room and had it figured out by the time she got out of her checkup. Basically, the cover figured it out because it it really is true. If you just expect everything to be mad in the world, you will never be disappointed. It also means that you can't possibly figure it out ahead of time. So just brace yourself. There. Love it. Just finished up the podcast. We can stop now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Seriously, what are you trying to figure out? You know, really quite seriously, and you know this perfectly well, but our listeners don't. I am in a bit of a period of professional limbo. Hell. And I'm trying to. It is. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out how to tolerate the waiting. So, I mean, I'm not going to jinx this situation by telling you what it is you will just have to tolerate the ambiguity as I tolerate this impossible situation of trying to wait for what maybe good news maybe no news and it's really turning me into a different version of myself Marty I'm worried that they're going to be very worried about you this is a just a profession in which waiting for good news is developed to an extent that would be used as torture in warfare and and uh, so there's nothing wrong with Ro. No, no, no. <laughs> but it's all I mean, fine. good things are pl- good things have happened, and in this particular walk of life, a good thing that happens leads to another good thing that may or may not happen, and every one of them feels like your life is on the line. So I have been doing things like waking up in the middle of the night in the cliche waking up from a nightmare TV trope of. Sitting up from lying flat on my back, gasping, (gasps) and then immediately checking my email, even though (laughs) I know for a fact that if a happy email ever were to come, it would come during, you know, business hours, it's fair to assume. I've been demanding from my loved ones optimistic encouragement at all times. But not too optimistic, you don't want to jinx things. No, I do not want to jinx things. I've become intense 
intensely superstitious. Oh my god. <laughs> She's not a professional baseball player, but the the level of superstition is similar. B- baseball players are infamously superstitious. Is that right? Yeah, they like if they get hit a home run in one pair of socks, they'll never wear another pair of socks and they'll never wash them. Wow. Not that you're doing that. I am doing that. That's crazy. Well, <laughs> I'm doing that. Well, maybe so anyway, I'm psychic, right? Maybe so. Which we've been trying to be. Yes, I've been I've been trying very hard to send psychic vibes out into the ether. So it's yeah, it's just it's a thing. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure myself out and that's just a lifelong quest, really. What are you trying to figure out, Marty? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I am trying to figure out something that just shows you how privileged I was during the pandemic. The pandemic didn't affect us as negatively as it did many people. And as an introvert, I kind of loved lockdown. Yeah? Mm. And travel, like going out of my house has always been a little unnerving for me, but actually traveling is terrifying, which is ironic because for much of my life I traveled, I flew to different cities probably five or six times a month to give speeches and whatnot, all of which provoked the most massive anxiety. And I would cope with it by buying travel things from the drugstore. <laughs> you know, the little travel shampoo and the little tiny, like self-contained little toothbrush with little toothpaste. And I had, I went and I bought a little nest of these things because I have to go. I don't have to go. I am incredibly privileged to go to South Africa next month mm-hmm. um, for our wonderful um, stay at Londolozi with the folks who come. Yeah, it'll be amazing. But... I am terrified and I can only allay my terror by buying these little travel items. So I did that. I got a little satchel of them. I was so pleased with myself. I went home and immediately found like 19 other little travel satchels all with the same things from like reaching back 12 years because I never throw them away. This is a pattern for you. It is. Yeah. And the only way I I know how to deal with it, and this is true. This This is is literally true. true. I have to adopt a completely different persona to even leave the house with a suitcase or even to pack it. And I call my persona the airport hobo. Uh Airport hobo has no connection or memory of that life outside airport world. Right. And there's only one airport world. Anywhere you go in the world, you're in the same damn airport. Well, that is true. That is literally true. It's it's airport world. And so airport hobo has a whole like ecology, like... Airport Hobo's only known foe is the baby. (laughs) See a baby. Airport Hobo has great fear. Mm. And like discovering a hot outlet. I don't know if they've put more of them in, but to plug in your computer. Mm. (laughs) You could fight other Airport Hobos for that. Yeah. So are you saying that Airport Hobo mode kicks in as soon as you start packing? It has to or I'm too afraid to pack. Right. Yeah. And I have... So how do you protect yourself? Like, how does Airport Hobo take care of you? Airport Hobo does not know of my loved ones. Mm. Airport Hobo rides alone. (laughs) Fear only of babies. And I always think uh, in Airport Hobo language, if I meet another Airport Hobo and like we had a sexual liaison, I would say things to them like, use caution when opening contents may have settled while in flight. Oh my okay. gosh. Are you uh, trying to confess something to me right now? Well, you are an international traveler. One of the things, Marty, that people who get to know you discover quite quickly, at least outside of pandemic times, yeah. is that the greatest honor that Martha Beck can bestow upon one is to grace them with an airport hobo name. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you have to go into your alter ego. And so I I started out, I think I was, um, um, Numbum Eyebag was my first uh, airport hobo name. But I, they changed. Right. Yeah, and, and what was yours? Do you have one? Oh, the boomerang. I am the boomerang. Because you can go to Australia, but you got to come back. <laughs> and uh, Karen, God bless her, is Hasty McEarly Pants. Karen's Hasty McEarly Pants persona, it, it, it like it's not the same as your airport hobo persona. It, no, it, it infuses her life. Yeah, it metastasized basically. Yeah, yeah, and so now mine is peevish, cute lollygag because she pushes to hurry, and I'm like, no. Yeah, <laughs> and we've had others. We've had stands with a latte. 
we've had another one of our friends, a mother and daughter who fly together. The daughter is um, Princess Skynapper. Princess, Princess Skynapper, and the mother is slightly Juan Kenobi. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so you can do that. And you see another, you're like walking through the airport. I'm an airport hobo. I have no loved ones. I only fear babies. And you see someone like a, someone dressed in a business attire sitting on the floor alone in a dark part of the airport right next to a power outlet typing away. And you're like, I see my people. Is there like a secret wave between airport hobos? Yeah, absolutely. You, you catch their eye and then you look away very firmly. <laughs> We are not meeting in real life. That is not going to happen. Leave me alone. Airport homos, they are solitary. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling better already, actually. I'm serious. (laughs) I'm not even joking. I just have to say something about Karen's preparation for the South Africa trip that does happen, you know, each year. Uh, Because you, you talk about tiny shampoos, which are, it has to be said, extremely cute oh god yes but you also have been known to purchase items of clothing in a panic pre-airport hobo like persona this is true coming down and this is true you know i i can't help but suspect that you um <laughs> that that there's a sort of identity thing you're going to see your old friends you haven't seen them for a while it's like who am i gonna be and one of the really funny things about karen is that she has one thing that she needs to do in preparation for going to South Africa, and that is to don a leather bracelet. That is true. Which, in her mind, makes her look cool. Yeah. And, and it her, does. It's literally all she packs. <laughs> Basically. Because <laughs> that's what I have thousands of travel shampoos. She doesn't need that. Mm-mm. Yeah, just the leather bracelet. <laughs> I this is I gotta stop this because I know it's not cool. But I un, my airport hobo persona unironically wears a safari vest with nineteen thousand pockets. Mm, mm, I, I'm glad you mentioned that it was unironic because you gotta have everything you need to survive in airport world in your on your vest. Mm-hmm. It can't be you can't like accidentally lose it. You have to be wearing everything. A few episodes ago, I talked about. Um, traveling in India and just the the vital importance of my gaffer tape that sorry duct tape that was wound around a pencil and I just feel like I wish I'd had one of those vests I could have put my gaffer tape in there there's a reason for those vests and and people who you know what if people out there are judging me for wearing a safari vest unironically I just challenge you to put one on Mm. and go to an airport and realize that you are safe like a turtle in its shell. In a way, <laughs> the airport itself is the greatest safari. Like, yes, you're, <laughs> you're, you're traveling across the world to see leopards and cheetahs and elephants and rhinoceros. But honestly, it's the airport that could be your undoing. Oh, God, the airport is terrifying. They, the rhinoceroses. I thought I was going to be killed by a rhinoceros once I was in no danger, but I didn't know that. It was in that. an airport. Um, yeah, I was in an airport. <laughs> no, I was thrilled when I thought I would be killed by a rhinoceros. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. I was like, what a great way to go. But I don't want to go in airport world. No. Because no. airport hobo has no soul. <laughs> hey, that reminds me. Yeah. No, it doesn't. That doesn't remind me, but something you said earlier reminds me um, about our new item, Karenism of the Week. Do we have one this week, Marty Moo? Yeah, I have one. Um, Karen came home and she said, I met a a nice woman at the park today while I was walking the dogs. She had the most muscular poodle I've ever (laughs) seen. (laughs) And we hailed each other. The woman and I raised our hands to each other and I just watched those muscles in that poodle <laughs> and I just felt very connected to her I think that muscular poodle would be a really good name for a band oh no kidding or Rowan Mangan and the muscular poodle <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking of adopting it as my next airport hobo name the muscular poodle and it doesn't work no Though there are a lot of a lot more dogs in airports now, but that's neither here nor there. The the fact is that Karen was blessed by an encounter with the most muscular poodle she's ever seen, and that should make your day if nothing else does. 
And if that doesn't make your day, go ahead and Google muscular kangaroos, biceps, and that will make your day. Oh, my God. I want to do it right now. You can't. You're doing a podcast right now. Oh, my God. We'll be right back with more Bewildered. I have a favor to ask. You might not know this, but ratings and reviews are like gold in the podcasting universe. They get podcasts in front of more faces, more eyes, more ears, all the bits that you could have a podcast in front of. That's what they do. So it would help us enormously if you would consider going over to your favorite podcasting app, especially if it's Apple, and giving us a few stars, maybe even five, maybe even six. If you can find a way to hack the system, I wouldn't complain. And um, a review would also be wonderful. We read them all and love them. So thank you very much in advance. Let's just go out there and bewilder the world. Change, eh? Mm, It sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. By coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right, you can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. So let's get right down to business, Marty. Okay, let's Let's talk about the actual topic today. (laughs) Let's go right out on a limb and have a topic. (laughs) Right. So this is, it's an interesting topic because this one, look, it's something that we're genuinely trying to figure out in real time. So it's very fresh. It's not like one of those, oh, this is a kind of thing that comes up in life. It's like, no, this is what we are going through in our own bewildered adventure right now. Just making mistakes every day. We know it, but we don't know what they are. It's very exciting. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm talking about parenting. Yes. Parenting in this day and age. I mean, how do you raise kids to be happy people ever at all? Right. And in the context of today's culture, like we're basically handing these children a world in peril. So they've got to be hyper-functional. But we want our kids to be wild. Yeah. Culture like, resistant. Or, well, culture proof, ideally. But culture resistant, yeah. you know, would I'd settle for. Yeah. and But there's a lot of... There are a lot of opinions about how to do parenting out there in the world. Culture comes on strong. Culture comes on strong and it comes on everywhere as well. You know, and I I was saying to Marty earlier, I don't know if if the parenting vibe and judgments and and intense opinions was as strong before social media or, or whether you could sort of escape it a little bit more, but it's crazy out there it is really really gnarly and well I mean yeah everyone's just nuts in 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 people okay let me let me be more specific people on social media who have views about parenting oh my god crazy it's a lot it really is. You're getting battered with very strong opinions from all these different viewpoints. Some of them contradict each other. And you feel very vulnerable because this is the most important thing you'll ever do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, as our readers know, they're not readers, they're listeners. They're Imagine so readers. reading but with your ears. Okay? Got it? All right. Just keep going. You're already doing great. <laughs> In this podcast, we help people from bewilderment, ah, what's going on? I'm so confused, to bewilderment, to their wild true nature. In this instance, we're just trying to help ourselves. (laughs) But then again, that's always the case, isn't it, Always, always. So, Marty, what does the culture say about parenting? Well, there's a really, I don't know if if this dates only from therapy days onward, but certainly for the last couple of centuries, there's been this really strong belief that what children do is their parents' fault. Hmm. What, what children experience is their parents' fault. For centuries. Truly? Uh, 
probably, you know, maybe a century and a half. We're coming up to the middle of the 21st century, really. I guess. Think about it, yeah. Feels newer than that to me, but go it's on. It's probably a century, you know, since therapy really kicked in as a concept around the world. Mm. So the whole idea is that in the nature-nurture debate, how mm. much of us is just born to be the way we are and how much is influenced by culture. Mm. Even though we know scientifically that <laughs> nature pretty much rules the day, culturally, the idea is... It's all nurture. It's 100%, 100% your fault mm. if your kid isn't happy and doing the things that the culture wants. And I mean, I should say, like, there's different – I agree that that's the prevailing view, but then what the culture wants can be, like, completely contradictory things. Like, the culture has has many – it's, it's like, what do you say? Like, it's a Medusa-headed thing. Mm. It has the Hydra. Hydra, thank you. Yeah. Or Med like Medusa has snakes. Maybe a kind of Medusa Hydra where she has snakes all over her head and if you cut one head off, it grows back too. Just a really well hydrated Medusa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they, they, they're they all saying it's your fault, but some of them are saying it's your fault if you, whatever, I've talked about this before, sleep train or don't sleep train or whatever. Yeah, but actually I'm all agog because I've never heard the amount of stuff that comes at us through the social media and so um like i i've been reading a couple of books recently one's a book proposal that is going to be a book someday and one is a, a book that i just read about people who are parenting kids with different genetic issues so one woman her daughter has a huge chunk of missing dna like a huge mm. chunk and they never thought she'd walk or talk and she's doing all that but she also has some really aggressive tendencies and she can be very scrappy and quite violent for a five, six-year-old girl as the mother's writing about her. And here's the thing. Everybody out there thinks that this mom had the same shot at having a, you know, dutiful, well-behaved child right. as anybody else. They right. can't see the code of DNA, the patch that's missing. Mm. And here's this mother who is like the most conscientious, the most loving, the most, I mean, she's a therapist. She's wonderful. Really? She's supposed to to compensate for a huge chunk of DNA missing can't be done. And do you think we can like extrapolate that out to basically, I'm trying to think of how we would characterize how much is, is the equivalent of missing DNA? Like how much is just them? And I know this yeah. is an age old question, <laughs> it is. but I'm just, I'm, I'm curious, like, because I'm dealing with this myself, like, mm -hmm. What would you say if you had to guess, like how much do you think I or you can influence Lila's ultimate personality or the life she chooses to live? I think you can sort of bang it around the edges, but it kind of is what it is. And what popped into my head just now are, are the famous twins raised apart studies. And mm. what they find is that twins, identical twins raised apart, same DNA, totally different families from birth, have almost identical uh, personalities and like there's the famous case of the two gyms they both grew up their found separate families named them both Jim, james allen which just shows that the name you know you just look like your name <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> especially as a baby they um they grew up to have bizarrely similar lives they had both had dogs they named toy they both married women named linda and then divorced those women and married someone named betty they both drove the same car they smoked the same brand of cigarette they liked to make circular benches around trees and they both drove their cars 2000 miles to the same tiny beach in florida for vacations though they never ran into each other okay that's a little bit off the topic here sort of i mean because it brings in also <laughs> I don't even know what made all that happen, but the the fact remains that twins raised apart have very, very similar um, personalities and life experiences quite frequently. So let me get this straight. Yeah. Our daughter is going to marry someone called Wilma, mm -hmm. regardless of how we treat her. We She'll divorce Wilma and yeah. marry Betty. Yeah. She may even be more adventurous. She may go ahead and divorce Betty and marry Fred. Or she could be like us and marry all three of them. Oh, nice. It's really sweet. Nice. If, they, if she could do that by the time. Oh, we don't know because we're calling her she. We don't know. We don't know. Male, female. Seriously. We have no idea. It's very frightening. And the judgment is always coming. Yeah. When I see parents online 
trying to relate to each other about their kids. There's such a strange, there's almost like a social media culture about how you talk about parenting because it is so um, volatile. And so there's just so many like disclaimers and uh, apologies in advance and please don't judge. This is just the way I've chosen to do it. I know that there are other opinions. You know, like there's just so much of that verbiage around ev- anyone saying anything and, and because the attacks come in like pew, wow, yeah. they're huge. And it's you're so vulnerable because you love your kid and you want to do it right so much. Exactly. I remember you before you even got pregnant using IVF, you were already like judging yourself for doing things that were – Reckless, like I don't know, not hydrating enough one day, and so your Medusa head didn't work as well. <laughs> it was crazy, actually, because there's a book um, that I read because it was I was well, we won't go into the whole thing, but it was about like keep those eggs nice and happy and youthful, and um, so this book, which is a great book, so it's called Starts with the Egg, and it said among other things, if you want to keep your eggs in good shape. Don't, for the love of God, ever touch a receipt. Now, someone mentioned that on a forum that I was reading about IVF before I'd read the book. And I thought, I'm not, either that's an autocorrect thing or I'm not, like, in this context, I don't know what they mean by the word receipt. Mm. Anything one receives must not be touched. <laughs> right, or something like that. You stand near it and gaze. And I swear to God, like I looked it up, I was trying to figure it out, and then I read the book. No, like receipts that you get when you pay for something and then they give you your change and they give you a receipt to prove that you bought it, that you don't touch it or it will kill your eggs. Because it's tainted with money thoughts. I don't know what it's tainted with, but something very toxic. And you can imagine, Muddy. You know, you go to CBS and those things are like three print, miles long. It's a novella each and every time. They print out these receipts and they if you try to go away without them, they're like, no, come back. And I'm so paranoid at this point about receipts that I'm looking at that thing coming out like it's a boa constrictor <laughs> that's going to like kill my little eggs. So I'd be up there looking at the, I don't know, travel shampoos or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And Roe would come hurling by her, hey! With a, an attendant behind her with a mile-long receipt going, you really need this. It's worth money. Oh. I was like, you're trying to hurt my baby. And there was no, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. But the culture doesn't want us to do what we want for our children, no. right? And in fact, the culture, I mean, we talk about the culture as if it's a monolithic entity, but the fact is it's a kind of agglomeration of, a, of everyone's social self, which is has a priority one we stick together we're alike right right the other is the is the danger so the culture's emphasis on raising the right kind of child isn't about the the kid being happy mm. it's about the, having the right kind of child who matches the culture you know we'll achieve in these ways we'll um have these attitudes we'll treat strangers this way it wants us to raise people who cooperate with it so for you, like you had the perfect kind of experience of, of the way the culture works, right? With your second Ooh, big time pregnancy. Yeah, there I was uh, getting my third degree from the place I went to school. <laughs> Little place known as, uh, everybody ready to drink? Yeah, it's Ivy League. Anyway, <laughs> there I was and uh, getting pregnant for the second time quite early in life by Harvard standards. Oops, I said it, drink. Um, Because I was also raised a a Utah Mormon. So I had one child and then another. We're going to get a boy and a girl, full set of children, done. They were going to, I mean, when when my oldest child was born, uh, my then husband was at Harvard Business School. And his whole class took out this page in the Harvard Business Review that said, welcome, Catherine Beck class of 20 whatever. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, Harvard bound. Yeah. They call it a legacy if your parents went there. Uh-huh. And, yeah, it gives you a big leg up. Anyway, so here comes my next pregnancy. Little boy, perfect, great. More than halfway through the pregnancy, we find out he has Down syndrome. Mm. Mm. Ah. 
And everyone told me it was like having a malignant, well, one doctor said it was like having a malignant cancer, but people pretty much universally acted as if it was. But I was thinking that, and you can read the whole book I wrote about it, but the basic thought was I'd already bonded with this kid. So it wasn't whether or not I wanted to have a child. I am very pro-choice politically. Mm. It was what child do I want and what feels right to me? For the first time in my life, I, I said, this, is my, this decision will affect the child more than anybody and me next. Right. So I'm going to make this decision and, mm -hmm. it, and I, I have to take responsibility for this. Anyway, um, yeah, it was a life transforming thing. The first time I pulled way back from culture and just looked at the whole thing and went, this is nuts. Like, you're way less happy at Harvard, you people, than a lot of the people with Down syndrome I know. So it was like going to the pet store to get a puppy like everyone else mm -hmm. come home open the kennel box and out jumps a kitten mm. and what i heard once they said you know okay we accept that you're not gonna have an abortion then the next thing my advisor said was put the baby in an institution the second he's born because mm. you don't want him dragging you down and i'm like is that really dragging me down for me or is it your culture right that sees that as dragging me i just was like Arr. So they said, well, there are a lot. Then, then the doctors and stuff said there are all these therapies you can do to get him act the way we want children to act. Right. And it was like saying, so sorry you got a kitten, but they have therapies you can almost make them bark. <laughs> make, yeah. it, make it wag its little tail. Kind of. You can get it to fetch, sort of. It's more a killing thing, but it's a little <laughs> like fetching. And I remember thinking at one point, I can't make him normal but what if I like cats? Mm. Why, why don't we find out what a cat does when you let it do what it wants? Right. And I, so I raised him that way and it was this incredible experience and it wasn't until 20 years later that I thought, oops, I should have done that with my other kids as well. <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was trying to shoehorn them into a school system that was not made for half. It just, like I really screwed up. But that shook me out of the culture and I was like, yeah, if you don't agree with me, you can respectfully shove it. And it's interesting because it makes me think, what if there's no such thing as a puppy? You know what I mean? Like, what if they're all kittens and we're putting these little, like, masks on them? Or maybe some of them are like skunks or raccoons or, or octopi, octopuses. They could be octopuses. Yeah. You could have an octopus child. It would be amazing. I wish we did. Maybe we do. Maybe we do. <laughs> we'll see. Now we got fresh meat. <laughs> But it's amazing, isn't it? Because it's so hard not to project your own wishes onto so your kids and, and like, to not to decide that you know what their life is for. Right. You know, it's like here's this, this tabula rasa that I just get to project all over and say, you know, like the classic, I know what's good for you. Yeah. What? And we're told to do, like, everything around us is sort of uber-parenting us, saying, I know what's good for you. And your job is to say to your child, I know what's good for you. And I just have to say that while I, you know, I'm sitting here with you doing that, doing this podcast where we say, I really disagree with that point of view, I find it really hard not to do it. Yeah. In fact, I'm terrified right now, seriously, in this moment, I'm afraid that people out there are going, how dare you, how very dare you mess with this subject? Mm, mm. You know, this was, this is not about being wild. When you're a parent, by God, you keep the rules. It's very heavy duty. And all of us want our kids to be free from suffering, right? Yeah. Like yes. that is deep in the marrow of my bones. Right. But the other day I was... Um, I was listening to some Buddhist dude and he was talking about how we only grow through struggle. And he said, um, a wasted life is a life with no mistakes and no suffering. Wow. And I was like, oh, thank you, sir. Mm. And then I was working with a client later, such a good mother, so worried about it all and terrified her kids would suffer. And I just found myself blurting out, listen, your, your kid's pain is their birthright. Get your dirty hands off it. Absolutely. And, and God, it's a hard thing to remember, isn't it? And yet, you know, the other layer of this in a way, and one of the things that I think that so the sort of social media parenting posses that I, that I encounter do really well from a sort of psychological point of view is 
talk about how um, there, there's like there's recognition about how the process of being a parent really can bring up our own shit oh, and yeah. force us to to deal with it. And so there's there's like a strange um, circularity there of the yes they have their right to suffer and maybe the suffering like maybe we're trying to avoid our suffering by trying to avoid their uh, suffering yeah oh that's really good because i really learned with adam um that he couldn't breathe right at first i had to suction out his nose every 15 minutes mm. for, after two weeks i was literally nearly dead of exhaustion right and there came a moment when i realized that I thought I couldn't breathe because he couldn't breathe. Right. And I actually had to look at him, this tiny little baby, and say, this is your problem, not mine. And I put him in the hall and I said, I have to sleep. And if you die because I don't suction out your nose, it's either that or we, we both go down. So I slept for two hours and it changed my life and he learned to breathe through his mouth. So they and they learn that's the and thing, they yeah. learn stuff that we are holding them back from learning because of our own fears, whether it's our fears of about them, whatever, <laughs> asphyxiating or whether it's our fears about being judged or whatever. It's, but, you know, you're right. I think in our culture, good parenting is actually fearful parenting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And I just want to say before we move off it that. You know, if if our if our goal is to become bewildered, right? This this is such a trial by fire because um, trying to parent in in a way that does not project all over Lila my own mm. weird ideas is is just putting a mirror up every single day to all the places, a lot of them unexpected, where I am still completely governed by the culture. Isn't that? It really, really brings it up. Yeah. The biggest thing for me is I've been obsessed with psychology my whole life. And as you read about how the brain works, you realize that kids really are laying down a lot of neurological behavioral tracks. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the rate of learning and how fast they absorb it is almost scary. Right. It's, and it's so much faster than later in life. And it's very easy to get the wrong impression as a baby or get, get a trauma from either from something horrible or for something relatively, from an adult perspective, not that terrible. Right. But to the baby it is. Of course, yeah. Legitimately. So you can go back and heal those wounds later. And it's a very short hop from I carry wounds from my childhood to my parents messed up. It's all their fault. And that's permanently impacted my yeah. ability to be a person or whatever. Yeah, and it, you could slide into, if, if you were of a victim mentality, you could easily slide into the idea that everything about your happiness is 100% um, connected to how your parents raised you. And that's really strong in our culture. There's there's a maybe not 100%, but 99 point something. Yeah, know? yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so, like, for me, I totally don't subscribe to that idea with regard to my own parents right like I don't I don't see their actions as as being the reason for anything right one way or another in in myself but what's interesting is that I find I 100% subscribe to that idea when it comes to my kid that yeah. any misstep any f-bomb any oh dear actually that's such a liar oh dear <laughs> don't, don't drop f-bombs day and night uh let me think of a better example maybe we could start again with another baby <laughs> uh... i don't think we could ever control that what's a better example but like i don't know like say having a fight in front of her or something like that you know yeah. we ha- we haven't really done that well yet, and the thing but... we've talked about before which is you did a good job but only because you were trying yeah, right. <laughs> yeah all of those things but i don't think the absence of that is is going to traumatize her but it is funny how and and isn't it just solipsism like isn't it just a god complex that we have to explore <laughs> as parents like right. i am all powerful and i am shaping this child mm, yeah but i and it's both ways because i you know in my case i think yeah my parents did stuff because they were confused themselves that that left me with wounds and it's my job to fix them mm. my children because the things I did have wounds and it's my job to fix those. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> they call it my god tentacles. Yeah, no, it is. It's a, that's absolutely true, and I th- I bet we're not the only ones who feel that way. I think you're right. So, how do we come to our senses, Marty? Well, I will tell you in a minute. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. Welcome back. And I should say, Marty, when it comes to coming to our senses, mm. today, you know, is a bit of a departure for us because this is not so much how you listeners should come to your senses. It's like, here's how we're working with this ourselves, with Lila in real time. Here's us trying our best. Here's our work in progress, right? Yes, I have no illusions that I'm making no mistakes. Uh, I didn't before either. I just didn't know what mistakes I was making. I really was covering the ones that I thought were possible. And it turned out there was an entire world (laughs) of problems that I was creating that I didn't even think about. And, you know, I... I cut myself a little slack because those kids were born when I was in my early 20s. Yeah, impossible. Now, as a late-in-life lesbian, (laughs) how to have a brand-new baby in your 50s, marry a much younger woman, we have this brand-new, I get another chance, sort of. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't want you to think of me as just the evil experimenter, but it's really cool to have a brand-new baby come home after... You've seen a few grow up. Mm. Because here's what I know. I have no freaking clue what to do. Right. Nothing. But I'm fine with that. <laughs> and isn't that like that's almost always the thing now that you say that. Like get behind the language bit. Like get yeah. behind the bit that knows. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And for me, it's like I love animals, going to Africa to watch the animals, and I'm, I love to track them. And with Adam, I was always watching him to see what kind of kitten he was. Mm. And I would do the exercises. I did hours of exercises to make him a puppy. He was always a kitten. He was going to stay a kitten. But I got to really like cats. And such a cute kitten. Oh, he was, a, he was the best. They all were the best. And Lila could be an octopus. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, the way it feels changing her diaper these days. Oh, my God. You know, when we say we call it the angry salmon, she, <laughs> she thrashes so hard she could literally sw- swim upstream in a waterfall just with the thrashing. Absolutely. God, she's strong. See previous episodes. <laughs> anyway, um, every day she's, like, showing us who she really is. That's and she's right. amazing. But I didn't expect it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that like willingness to be shown, like waiting to see, waiting to learn, and you know where I feel like there's this constant back and forth of over projecting and deciding, and then stepping back, and so you know, and especially for me because I'm a planner and I'm a Virgo, and I'm just like I love it, I love all that stuff, <laughs> and so you know we have a conversation about education and what that will look like and I'm like well then she'll do this and then she'll do this and then it's always learning to add that proviso of if she turns out to be that kind of kid right she might do that but if she's not then we're gonna have to completely rethink it like a a recent development that's Mm. quite alarming to Marty and me is that she's really really loves balls like basketballs little laundry um anti-static in the dryer (laughs) balls she loves them all and we're looking down the barrel of like a really terrifying possibility that our kid might be athletic oh my god i mean when you first said she's into balls i thought she might not be gay and that would be a horror oh god we can't even don't even say it (laughs) (laughs) but you're right. I mean, she's acting athletic. I said she's strong. She's also coordinated and obsessed with sports. Yeah. It's really, I don't know what we're, it's terrifying to acknowledge that this could happen in our household. 
We can always go to therapy if it works out that That's way. That's true. Yeah, we'll yeah, figure I, it out. But I'm not going to try to send her to a change camp or anything so she's not athletic. No. You guys may be picking up the... Uh, sorry, you folks may be picking up that we are not of an athletic bent our own selves. No. No. Yes, we, we are joking. Know. All you athletic people out there, we have huge admiration and delight that you are athletic. We're just terrified of having a child who turns out that. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> unnecessary defensiveness there. I think they got the joke, but that's fine. Okay, good. Uh, all right. So, yeah, any parent will tell you after looking back on their kids that they came out a certain way. And by God, 15, 20, 30 years later, they're still pretty much that person. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it makes me, I mean, I, I just tend to get weird as, as we progress down the halls of this conversation. Like, because what if nature and nurture aren't even what if there's no such thing as those things what if dna isn't even relevant what if you know that they just all are who they are and they're just these you know little individual aspects of of the collective soul or whatever just having all these different experiences and and actually it's their difference that defines their life like the ways Mm. that they're different is just life having so much fun by not all being freaking puppies yeah you know and i was thinking about there's this great um passage in our friend stephen mitchell's second book of the Tao, and i just thought of this that it says a horse is not a horse it might be a four-legged animal that neighs but it's not separate from the rest of the non-horsical reality if anything, it's reality horsing or reality being horsed. And I always mm. thought of that. I remembered it as life instead of reality, like life being horsed. And I remember getting like really unduly upset once when I accidentally hit a squirrel. We were in oh, California and I hit rough. a squirrel. And I'd been listening to the CD of the audiobook of that in the car that same day. And I was just like, so what I told myself was, okay, that's just life has just finished squirreling for the moment you know nice. it's just finished squirreling there and it, and it changed my perspective and then from there like I went into like a recognition of like the absolute ridiculous hubris of thinking that I should control anything about my child's existence mm. other than like keeping her body and her heart you know as safe as I can yeah safe though not not constricted and caged not caged because my job really is to just sort of try and safeguard the vehicle that is life being lila yeah right yeah and i can't know what life wants to do as lila right and and between you know this this sort of i mean the two gyms kind of give some weight to that whole there's something beyond even the physical going on yeah but the combination of whatever mystical presence is there in that being and the nature that has evolved this body over hundreds of millions of years it's far too complex for us to control with our cognitive minds yeah you know so the first thing that and this is really really i see how much different i am with lila than with my other children it's okay to detach from the belief that you have to control anything about this (sighs) strong medicine you can't do it. And I've coached literally thousands of people. That is literally true. And I have heard countless times, my parents were so controlling. My parents were so controlling. My parents were so controlling. I never once have heard someone say my parents weren't controlling enough. Mm. They didn't try to shove me into a cultural mold hard enough. (laughs) I've never heard that. And maybe it's just because there are people coming to me for help, but maybe it's because we're not supposed to be controlled. Yeah. And, and yeah, I just have to return to the fact that there's no, like in the urge to control, this isn't us blaming or accusing because it is so hard and then it becomes a different layer of hard when you involve other people yeah. and our projections of other people's expectations and what they might think if we do blah, 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 blah. And I actually, Marty, I had this cool thing the other day where I was like trying to test this out about coming to my senses as a parent. Um, Lila was given this beautiful little red wagon, isn't there? Like some famous American. Red, red Rider. Red Rider. Okay. So it's like this little wagon. 
and um, it's very sweet and very cute. And she was, we were in the house and we were sitting around having our morning communion like we do. And Lila, and this thing doesn't really have a brake, so it's four wheels, it's a wagon, picture it. (laughs) And she was climbing in and out of this thing. And that was, it's just sort of at a point where it's a challenge for her to climb in and out of. And I was watching her and I caught myself needing to check in with Marty and my mum who were both there. And I was like, listen, I'm watching her do that and I need you to tell me Am I being a bad mother right now? Because I know that I know that there's parents, there's plenty of parents who would be freaking out about her doing this. Mm. But what happened, because it was all sort of happening in slow motion and you know, we were in a relatively safe space and everything, I was I was able to sort of step back and check my body and check for signals in my body of alarm. And so that's what I said to Marty and Mum was I, I, my brain can see that this could be dangerous, but my body does not detect a sense of danger. Right. And that, I mean, going back to instinct is, I think, how you parent without enculturating your child. And, and if there's a way to culture-proof the child, is to culture-proof yourself. Right. By refusing to be pressured by parenting demands away from your parenting instincts. Right. So um, one uh, man I am proud to call a friend, Gavin DeBecker, who wrote The Gift of Fear, talks about how genuine fear happens in genuinely dangerous situations. It tells us to take action. It's actually a calm sensation. But we force ourselves to ignore it out of social imperatives. For exa- And the mm. example he gives is that if you're in a, an elevator in a high-rise building after dark and nobody else is there and you go to get in the elevator and the door opens and there's a man in there and you feel immediately a sense of don't get in, don't Mm. do it. You get in any way out of the fear of looking weird. Yeah. And he says no other animal in nature would voluntarily lock itself in a steel box with another animal that scared it. I think I've said this before on the podcast, but it's worth repeating. Oh, yeah. Because when you take, I mean, we've been talking about it for us as individuals, but double it, triple it, quadruple it as a parent. Don't take your instinctive, you know, impulses and throw them away because of your fear of what other people will think about you as a parent. And oh my God, let's not forget, don't model doing that to your kids who are watching you suppress your instinct. And that, talk about perpetuating the culture. Yeah, no kidding. And it set me free when you read me something out of a book that said the child's job is to do dangerous things safely, carefully. Yeah. Was that it? And we were talking to another friend, um, talking about, an anthropologist going to a village where they had a fire at night and the tribe was gathered or whatever and there were little kids running around Mm. and the anthropologists were like it's incredible they don't even put a barrier in front of the fire what's keeping the children away from the fire Mm. and our friend was saying it's just the children's instincts and i was like no it's called (laughs) heat You get really close to a fire. It's very uncomfortable. The one thing we're born fearing is falling because falling doesn't push you away instinctively. Mm. So we've evolved with a fear of falling, a fear of falling, a fear of sudden loud noises. Those are the two fears you were born with. Everything else is socialized, but don't blame your parents. (laughs) But I think that like, let's not lose that point that our kids may be like unformed in certain ways, but their instincts are there are intact are worth trusting and and that goes back to the wagon like her instincts were good she was doing a dangerous thing carefully yeah and you see that like we put all these grates around the staircases Mm. and then i said we have this saying she's on the loose (laughs) when she gets out of the gates and you know the first time she walked up to a staircase i expected to see horrors and she looked at it turned around, got down on all fours and back down and then slid down like a seal perfectly safely. That was her instinct. No one taught her to do that. She yeah. figured that out at like one. Yeah, yeah. And just to like complicate the plot again though, like so there's my instincts, there's her instincts and then I feel like we can do the opposite from from what um, Gavin DeBeck is talking about with the elevator, right, where 
I am at the park, say, and mm-hmm. there's other parents around and other kids, and I can see something happening that I don't feel is dangerous, but I don't want the other parents here at the park yes. to think I'm bad. And they're giving you dirty looks. Or they're not, and I'm imagining they are. It doesn't oh, even so matter. It's immaterial, but I still will be like, I will act as though I'm afraid. Well, <laughs> this bizarre? is something I actually twigged to this with my um, older kids because at a certain point around puberty, I started telling them, we're going in to talk to your teacher, pretend to be normal. We're going to both pretend to be normal because we've <laughs> got to get through this system. It's a ridiculous set of hoops to jump. We know who we are, but we will present a faceless smile <laughs> to, the, to the agents of the culture. I don't know if it worked, but at least I felt like I was in my integrity. And I'm certainly planning to do that with Lila. So I hope you don't mind. I'm into it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that way we can throw away the useless fear of other people thinking badly of us, which we can't control, and then embrace the useful ones. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we overcome this kind of social cultural pressure when we're around other people and their judgments? Like this is the hard thing for me because that's going to be a big chunk of the time that we're parents even Mm. if you know what to do the fear of being seen as a bad or unloving parent that's a really powerful fear because it's like one of the worst things you can be yeah it is a genuine issue and I have to say I'm very grateful for meditation sorry if I say that too often but it is like one of the greatest things ever made because it talks about the the, the ability to focus our attention where we want it to be. Hmm. So the meditation is I will not focus on any input and that's really hard, but you start to realize that you are focusing your attention and you've been taught to focus it on the people around you who are most frightening to you. Right. So the child is probably the least frightening. The other adults are going to be more frightening. Hmm. You may just fall in with the other parents and do things that where your kid becomes invisible to you. Right. So the first thing is to take your attention and pull it off everyone else. And it doesn't, you know, I've been in groups of parents who are part of the religion I left who like outright hated me <laughs> for it. And I would just like pull my attention out of that. Or, you know, at Harvard when I had this little baby with Down syndrome and literally I would go around and everyone would pretend he didn't exist. Mm. And I just pulled my attention off them and I put it, on him if you can uh, there at the playground just say to the person right left to the right and left of you i see that you don't like what i'm doing my attention is not on you my attention is on my child and she's happy she's doing dangerous things carefully you have to be quiet in yourself Mm -hmm. and almost imagine like if your attention is a light beam go from a wide angle light to a very pinpoint one and just laser focus on, is my child thriving? Do I feel joy coming from this child? Can I feel my love for her rejoicing at what she's doing? Or do I feel like, oh, oh, this needs, I need to do this now. And it's very quick when you actually feel like your child is in danger, the instincts act, in, they're like lightning. Mm. So, This feels like it would apply to a lot of things, you know, like a lot of the stuff we talk about. Yeah. That getting quiet and and bringing your attention back to what matters and away from other people. Like that's got to be a lot of the stuff. Yeah, there was a a Zen master in the 13th century and somebody said, what is the secret of happiness? And he said, attention. And they were like, please elaborate. And he said, okay, attention, attention, attention. It's really about where we place our attention. When we place our attention on joy, we become more, the world seems more benevolent. Mm. When we put our attention on our love, then our conformity becomes less powerful. Yeah. And I have one more thing to add to that, which is that I feel like there's not much room for judgment when you're having fun. And so Mm. that's what I'm trying to do more of with Lila as well is look for places where there's fun, where we can have fun. And we are having quite a lot of fun. So here's the thing. She can come to us later and tell us what we did by mistake, and we'll say, wow, sorry, we had a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) So at least it's not three miserable people, and then Karen with her muscular poodle also joining in. And then we can also tell her, stay wild. We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, 
text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. We're also on Instagram. Our handle is Bewildered Podcast. You can follow us to get updates, hear funny snippets and outtakes, and chat with other fans of the show. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. And remember, if you're having fun, please rate and review and stay wild. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way.